Millions of dollars in Australia is spent on back pain imaging per year, but there are many common misconceptions with spinal imagery that often lead to overdiagnosis. So what is overdiagnosis? It's the diagnosis of a medical condition that would never have caused any symptoms or problems that can lead to psychobehavioural apprehension, worry and change in behaviour. Welcome to Talking Physio, an initiative of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. The foundation supports the profession in a number of ways, including the promotion and translation of research. This episode is proudly sponsored by Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap. It's been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief, lasting up to 15 hours. Flexies is the exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. In this episode, physiotherapists Dr. Adrian Traeger, postdoctoral research fellow, University of Sydney, Associate Professor Tasha Stanton, University of South Australia, and Dr. Emma Caron, postdoctoral research fellow, University of South Australia. They discuss why overdiagnosis is a huge problem and why it impacts our critical and our health systems. The trio stress the importance of patient communication strategies, the need for public health strategies to increase awareness and high-value care such as exercise, which can help regardless of the severity of a condition depicted on a scan. This episode is super interesting and a must-listen for anyone working in allied health. So I feel really excited actually to talk with you guys about this because I think in Australia you guys are doing some of the most exciting work in this area and the fact that it's actually becoming a topic I think is super important and so I'd be really interested Adrian to hear a little bit more about what's actually happening at the moment in Australia about overdiagnosis because I mean you're working with a really strong group at a University of Sydney that are at the forefront of this could you introduce this to us a little yeah sure so the collaboration that I'm working in at the moment is called the Wiser Healthcare Collaboration and that's this is a research collaboration that's been funded by the Australian government to, to work on this issue because the government's recognised that overdiagnosis is a big issue. Um, so it's brought together three different universities, major experts in the field, including Paul Glazoo at Bond University, Rochelle Bookbinder at Monash, Kirsten McCaffrey at Sydney Uni, who's a psychologist and professor, and Chris Maher at Sydney Uni. So that's sort of that's the group that, that I work within, and, and um, yeah, we're really trying to understand this problem of overdiagnosis and develop some solutions. And, and there's really interesting overlap, I think, between the work we're doing to communicate about overdiagnosis and the sort of work that Emma's been doing to discuss imaging with patients and, and those sorts of things. So it's a, it's, I think there's really interesting intersections between the work that we're all doing on this, and um, it's a huge problem. You know, the reason that it was funded by the government is because they thought that this is something that has potential to challenge the sustainability of our health system. So if we provide too many tests and too many treatments for an ageing population, then the health system is going to collapse and people aren't going to get better. So it's, it's a critical thing to, to understand and it's a critical thing for us to develop solutions for. So do we have a sense of how much overdiagnosis costs Australia? 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because, you know, overdiagnosis can happen in all different body regions and, and, and in different fields. So the famous examples are from cancer and cardiovascular disease, but we're starting to see issues emerging in musculoskeletal, which is obviously where, where I work. And to just take one example, so imaging for musculoskeletal pain or imaging for low back pain, which we know it's not indicated for most people who have back pain. Australian public money, there's about 300 million spent on, on imaging tests for back pain of public money. And that's, that's a huge that's amount enormous. of money every year, 300 million every year on a test that, that may not bring any benefit to patients, could potentially harm them. And it's money that could be spent on all these things we could be doing as physios that we know are evidence-based. So I guess I suppose the want to ask for some of these tests is clearly driven by probably beliefs that they will help. I don't know, Emma, some of your work might be relevant here. Do you, what are the common misconceptions that we, or the myths in this area that, that we think occur for patients that are going in and trying to figure out, like, what's wrong with me? Mm, there's quite a number of myths that are associated with low back pain and around the need for spinal imaging and also what spinal imaging actually tells us about what's wrong and what's not wrong with their spine. So my research is sort of interested in the consequences, I suppose, of this over-diagnosis and over-imaging that is really prevalent in the society today. Um, Certainly there's misconceptions around the need for a scan when someone has an episode of low back pain. It's certainly a really common scenario where a person will go to their doctor really expecting that they will get a scan believing that it's important for guiding the future care of their lower back or or just important to get that diagnostic label. And we're understanding more and more these days about the potential harms in that sort of approach and the need to, to change practices to avoid some of those harms. Patients may or may not be aware of the harms related to exposure from the scans that they get. But there's also scans that's related to what their scans actually show and the interpretations that they make of those scans. So we can call these sort of psychobehavioural harms and that's a word that really describes how people change what they believe and what they think about their back when they have a scan. Radiologists are really obliged to report all sorts of um, everything they see when they review a scan. And many of these things we know now, just simple things like disc bulges, facet joint degeneration, stenosis, a lot of phrases which people interpret as really quite scary in many cases can have harmful impacts because they cause people to be really apprehensive, they can cause quite significant degrees of worry and also cause people to change their behaviour so they might be less likely to be active which is going to have longer term impacts on their function and lead to greater disability. So there's a lot of things consequences of scanning that perhaps are poorly understood in the population. Yeah, that's so interesting to think in the context of back pain. And yeah, some of the work that I do, I work mainly in osteoarthritis. And so it's interesting because scans are often used to provide a diagnostic label in osteoarthritis to say, yeah, you've got osteoarthritis at the joint. But then it gets really challenging because certainly while there might be some value in in doing that and diagnosing that, because maybe they can get more access to different services, the trouble is it, it seems from some of the qualitative literature that people with osteoarthritis, they don't have a really good sense of what that information tells them. So there's this idea that what they see there actually determines their future. So if it looks really bad, I should expect that I should have this level of pain. It's never really going to change because those scan findings don't change. And that's a really big misconception. And I think, as you mentioned, has that similar link of then makes it difficult to 
think that you should be doing exercise or doing other things because you've got this terrible degenerative joint. And I guess it is interesting because there is that immediate sense and I guess belief that what they see on the scan is what's causing their pain. And I guess from a global larger pain science background, that's not the case necessarily. And so we are in this situation where sometimes seeing this stuff might be helpful in them feeling that they know why their knee hurts, for example. I've got osteoarthritis. But when we have these preconceptions that what I see here determines what I can do, rather than it showing me a picture of the joint at this moment, I think that really has implications and those myths are really pervasive. So we see that a lot in older adults that, that go in and have scans is, is it almost feels that their future is determined once they see that. Yeah, it's a real challenge with the effect of these reports can have on people's behaviours and you can get these really contrasting reactions to diagnostic imaging findings. In one sense, someone might be really relieved that there is pathology on there because it sort of legitimises their pain. So in qualitative research that we've done, we've just finished a big review on people's beliefs about imaging findings. And in one sense, it can reinforce that this this scan is the cause of my pain. But some patients like that. Some patients like to have evidence. But what they don't understand is that that that's not really very good evidence that that's the cause of their pain. But they can have these paradoxical reactions. Some people are more scared by seeing the scans. Some people are less scared. So it's it's really unpredictable what, what will happen. And I think we are in a situation where clinicians themselves may not be fully informed at all times about the need for imaging and these potential negative consequences that can come from it. And we also know that um, GPs, for example, often believe that their patients expect that they will get an image when they, when they present for care. But there has been some more qualitative research that's shown that, that that's not always the case. I actually undertook an online study where we recruited um, over 600 adults to complete an online questionnaire. These were adults with or without low back pain, but we got them to put themselves in a scenario where they had injured their back, they presented to healthcare, and then they were randomised to groups where they either received a scan or they didn't receive a scan, and those groups who didn't receive a scan were given some high-quality information in line with best practice care. And what we found was that those who didn't receive the scan were actually more reassured than the patients who did receive the scan, um, provided that is, of course, that they did receive good quality information, which may not always happen um, adequately in primary care. And that's perhaps another challenge that you'll be able to talk about, Adrian. Yeah, that's really interesting to consider in terms of when they're getting this high quality care. And I guess that links in really lovely with some of the osteoarthritis stuff that where we look at qualitative work is because when clinicians are sometimes interpreting these scans for patients, that doesn't seem to always be high quality care in the sense that oftentimes they're using terms like wear and tear, which immediately kind of gives this clinical reinforcement of, you know what, you've worn out your joint, so therefore if you do more activity, more tear, you're going to wear it out further. So it has this implicit, and sometimes explicit, message that, that actually you can make this worse. And even just that this then links into, I think, sometimes clinician behavior. So if they see this terrible scan and they have this belief that what they see, let's say, on a, a very degenerative knee x-ray is completely dependent or, or predicting people's pain and their response to treatment, 
they may hold beliefs that actually exercise isn't valuable for people that have severe degenerative changes, when actually really high quality level from um, evidence from systematic reviews shows that there can be improvement even when people have really late stage um, osteoarthritis, exercise can still help. And I guess it's, it's always interesting to consider who the pain patients are seeing if they're seeing general practitioners first or or physiotherapists, because certainly there's some evidence to suggest that when patients have gone in with osteoarthritis to see a GP, sometimes the GP will look at the scan, but really kind of put it off and just say, this is a normal process of aging. You should expect this because you're getting old, but not in the way that it's saying this can happen. These changes might be normal and don't mean that you necessarily will have pain, but rather you should just accept this. Your body's starting to break down. And this was a real thing that came out that patients just felt, I guess, a dissonance with GPs with not necessarily, I guess, feeling reassured by what they were told, but also feeling like their condition was being downplayed as something that it doesn't matter because you're old. And I think that's a really, not a lovely place to be in, but really important information to know how we might shape encounters. It's a fine line to tread. It's, it's a really fine line between dismissing what's on those, on those scan results and and uh, validating someone's pain and experience. And I think we're still thinking through the best way to do that, you know, that won't invalidate someone's experience, but won't actually increase worry or, or send them down a path of treatment that may not lead to the best outcomes. But it's a tricky one, you know, it's a, it's a fine line to tread. And do we run into a problem? The aim of some of the stuff that you're working on the moment is increasing awareness of overuse of imaging. Do we run into a problem where we can go too far the other way? Yeah, I, I think we can. I think that we should always keep in the back of our mind the importance of, of timely diagnosis for musculoskeletal pain. So for back pain, we have where people would be well aware we have catastrophic things that we must pick up um, as frontline practitioners. And so there's a, there's a balance there as well between, you know, if we're trying to discourage overuse of imaging, we want to make sure we're not discouraging use of imaging in general. It's just use of imaging when it's not indicated, which is tough to do because we're looking at public health strategies and these sorts of things which are giving quick messages to the public. And it's hard to get the nuance there about red flags. And so without actually having to do really in-depth clinician training about indications for imaging like you brought up Emma um, I think that's a key aspect to addressing this problem clinician training but it's and we need to change curricula around Australia and do those big things but but it is a tough one to communicate to the public because we don't want to scare people off having a scan in the rare event that they have got cord compromise or something that they really do need that urgent MRI so um, that is something that we're thinking through in the research we're doing and the communication strategies that we're doing to you know not give the message that imaging is bad in general but you know try and get that message that overdoing it is not helpful and that there are some harms if it's not that there's no harm just having the scan there are some harms that were well documented that people just don't seem to be aware of so need to raise awareness of those harms but not discourage imaging altogether and when they do have imaging you mentioned the challenges of that clinical consultation so what should we be saying to the patients who are in front of us that will validate their pain complaints, that will validate findings that are often very relevant that are found on imaging, but then try to de-threaten all those findings that are probably found incidentally and have no relationship 
to their pain complaint, they're probably likely to have pre-existed their pain and they're likely to be there forever and really be of no consequence. And how do we get patients to really understand that? That's where glitter came in, wasn't it? That yeah. Was, that's a beautiful study, you know, at that stage of the consultation when someone comes to you with imaging, you know, having a, having a new way of communicating that to the patient. So what, yeah. Yeah, that's what. right. So glitter was a study. Glitter is an acronym for green light imaging interpretation to enhance recovery. A little bit of a Glitter's lots easier. But that was a consultation, it was a framework for a clinical intervention that Dewey developed that was really quite specific um, for use in the spinal assessment clinic where we got patients who routinely came in with spinal imaging findings and these were spinal imaging findings that often you could see had led to quite significant and fixed beliefs about pathology in the patients who were presenting for care. So we decided to develop really just a framework to sort of standardise and optimise the information that we were giving to patients. It was designed to be delivered in 10 or 15 minutes as part of the general clinical interaction involving an assessment, full assessment and full explanation of what the relevant findings were on the imaging, but also took a unique approach of using the images as a clinical tool to reassure patients. So rather than just pointing out everything that was wrong with the spine, pointing out the aspects of the spine that offer structural integrity and strength and stability and convey the idea that the spine is a structure that needs to move to be healthy um, and perhaps isn't the vulnerable structure that they believed had needed protection. So this is training that you did with the clinicians? So you upskilled the clinicians in this approach? Or? Yeah, in this, in this setting, I guess, the clinicians probably didn't need to be upskilled a lot because they were consultations that they were used to taking part in. So it was really a framework, I suppose, just to make sure it became standardised, that it routinely was optimally delivered high-value care, and it was care that was also supplemented by a few novel aspects of glitter, I suppose, in that we developed some posters, a four-week series of posters which patients were able to put up on their fridge that really reiterated a lot of what we talked about in the clinical consultation. It gave links to online resources that were high quality that could supplement the information that they were given. We sent them an SMS once a week just to prompt them to read through and to turn their poster on to the next page. And we also communicated with their GPs about the sort of messages, well, about the understanding from the expert clinical consultation of what was going on and what the scans meant and what the best pathway towards recovery was going to be. It was really important, we thought, to be able to communicate that to the GPs so that there was a consistency of messaging from healthcare providers delivered to the patient as as much as possible. Because you guys have been exploring different communication materials as well, haven't you, Adrian? Yeah, it's more in that stage before someone's had imaging. So that's the nice link between mine and Emma's work is mine has been a little more focused on when people present to um, either primary care or or the emergency department with back pain and and some strategies at that point to try and raise awareness of the potential harms for imaging. But it's, it's a tough one because emergency settings, I don't know if any of you have been in an emergency room recently, they're pretty busy, crazy places. Back pain is low on the priority list of doctors. They just Their priority is just to not miss anything nasty. And yet it's an increasingly frequent place for people to present to the emergency department for simple back pain. So um, we thought it was a good setting to raise some awareness. People are sitting in the waiting room there sometimes for hours with back pain 
to print some materials and, and um, get some increased access of patients and the public to materials that can explain the issues related to overdiagnosis. Again, it's a challenging one because even the qualitative work we've been doing on the materials that focus on the harms of imaging, people can have quite a negative reaction and think it's a more a cost-cutting exercise for the government. And actually, they, they don't believe that there are these harms related to imaging. It's, it's hard to persuade them that you know, imaging is just not, not routine test anymore. So. Yeah, and especially, too, in the emergency department, you're at this heightened level of anxiety and stress, and it's a hard place to take in information. But I think that's a really, really innovative way. Maybe we can make it multi-sensory. Can we, like, give them some headphones and give them some nice Bach, and then they can read it? <laughs> there we go. Next project grant. I, I think that's great for the emergency department. Yeah, sound-reducing headphones would be just right. Yeah, block out the screams and, yeah. Yeah, but this, it's so cool to hear, I think, some of the, the pioneering stuff that you guys are doing in back pain because I think, in comparison, we're really at early stages with osteoarthritis. There's not as many, you know, materials or things developed. So um, at the moment, we're um, leading a study that's looking at developing general pain education tools and strategies for people with osteoarthritis and a, an important part of that is how we frame and how we talk about imaging and I think some of that we've really delved into the literature to, to look to see examples I guess that it kind of gives some some challenging things to maybe what beliefs people might have about that. So an example being quite a recent study showed that you know if you take asymptomatic people and you put them into an MRI scanner over the age of 40, about 43% of them will actually have MRI evidence of osteoarthritis, but they have no pain. So sometimes I think that information doesn't get out there to people and it can give them this alternative idea of what's going on and understanding of what's going on and then if we can supplement that with understanding of the complexity of pain and that actually that's a good thing because then it means we have all these other targets that we didn't even know about then I think that that can be quite powerful so yes I always keep a keen eye on all your guys's work to be like what can I poach <laughs> well that's I mean that that is a nice aspect of pain education you know because I, I have a bit of background in pain education as you know when we worked in body and mind and I think one of the really nice aspects of pain education that we can tap into is it has a gentle way of addressing some of these tough beliefs you know I've moved a little bit away from that in the strategies we're using now and they're quite punchy public health strategies they're almost on the negative way of almost like a fear campaign which I'm a little bit uncomfortable with but behavioral experts would suggest that this is one of the ways that you can change people's behavior but what we're finding is that when you take that approach and try and address people's beliefs that you know for example the imaging test shows pain and you try and just simply say imaging tests don't show pain even that message on its own it's so important and yet the public that we've been testing it on tend to react really negatively to that message whereas you know a little more nuanced and and um you know, the pain education approach does give that more positive message and, and, and an alternative rather than just telling people that's not the cause of your pain. There's the follow-up and there's the explanation for, you know, what is the cause of my pain if that's not it. So, But it's a tough one to get across in public health strategies. So you guys, I know you're doing the pain revolution and this is one of the big focuses of that, but I'm still trying to reconcile those things in quick public health messaging with pain education strategies that really do need a bit more time and individualization in some cases otherwise you're going to get a very angry person 
Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I understand that because I think even personally, if you've had an experience that something's hurt forever, like it's been bothering you for ages and you go in, you're like, I want to know what's wrong. I want to figure out what's wrong. And like, oh man, I had the most embarrassing thing in the whole world. I have foot pain on and off and I've had this forever. And they, UniSA had a study a while back and a heel pain study. So I signed up and um, as part of it, they did an ultrasound of people's feet and the participants. And so while I was getting it done, I happened to glance over and I was like absolutely shocked. I saw I had basically a partial thickness tear of my plantar fascia. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't actually think anything was wrong. (laughs) Oh no. Um, But then I was part of the study and they gave us new running shoes and we had to go run. So the first day that I went to go run, like I reckon I made it 400 meters before I just had stabbing foot pain. So I obviously attributed to the new shoes. So I tried the old shoes and I maybe made it 500 meters and my foot was so sore. And then by that point, I kind of sorted out that the only thing that had changed between the week before where I could run about 10 kilometers and the next week was that I had saw this terrible looking ultrasound. And um, so I called the, the study coordinator and I just said, I'm so embarrassed. I'm a little bit of a head case. Can I please come up and look at this ultrasound image again? I actually, it, it really freaked me out. I just need to make peace with it. And so um, he agreed, laughed at me a little bit, but took me back upstairs and he showed up the ultrasound image on the screen. And like, I was just aghast. It was totally fine. He'd showed me like the wrong image was up on the screen that I looked at. It wasn't even mine. And so, and then, you know, of course, you know, the next day I go out for a run and I'm fine. So it was so embarrassing because like, I should know better, right? I work in pain science, but I think we really underestimate, you know, the visual potency of seeing damage and the way that I think our brain uses information about that to determine like what's going on in the situation do I need to be protected so I guess I always knew it was important but I was very much humbled at how important it was for me and I don't know getting that message across to people is is really hard I suppose one of the things that that we've found a, a bit interesting is finding, you know, physiotherapists and different clinicians that are really interested in getting really good at that. So do you guys, I guess, have opportunities for different physiotherapists or other clinicians to, I guess, get involved with processes like this? So I think, Emma, you had some return to work essay collaboration where you were, you know, taking glitter and taking it out into the public. Yeah, so the the glitter work that I published did meet with quite a lot of interest from researchers and for clinicians as well. There really seemed to be a bit of a an unmet need in the clinical world for them to be able to have some tools to guide their clinical consultations and some supplementary resources to hand to their patients. So I have recently been involved in collaborating with Return to Work SA to do a second iteration, I guess, of these glitter documents. Um, and I think they are now available on, online on the Return to Work SA website so um, clinicians can download them, provide them to their patients and, and hopefully use them as they're meant to be used, which is to guide discussions around what their imaging findings show around the complexity of pain as you know we've talked a little bit about you know if scans don't show pain what's the pain all about um so under conveying the understanding that there, there's multiple contributors to a person's pain experience aside from just what's happening in the tissues and just what their scans show is that part of the materials emma the, yeah. the, the, some like dialogue tips and and things like that are, are built in yeah so there's some guidance with 
things that we could be talking about and discussions around the complexity of pain. There's some um, information that hopes to convey just the general benefits of activity and exercise, both in leading a full and active life, in assisting with pain as well, and in reducing the sensitivity of the nervous system, which we know is a factor with persistent pain. And you're you're looking to train some clinicians as part of your trial, Tasha, yeah. or, or yeah, in in yeah. these sorts of approaches, because that's a, this is part of your trial, isn't it? It's an that's aspect right. Of it. Yeah. So we're we're fortunate enough to get funding from NHMRC last year to run a large clinical trial looking at physical activity in people with osteoarthritis and looking at the influence of education. And so basically testing different types of education. So at the moment, um, we're looking for private practice physiotherapists that would be interested in either Adelaide or Melbourne in taking part in this. And as part of that, they would get I feel very, you know, a little bit arrogant saying this, but high-level training. (laughs) But training in some of the new methods, I guess, of communicating pain science, but also then general training in providing and prescribing physical activity programs in people with osteoarthritis, because I think that is is a nuanced activity as well. So it's a good area, I think, to upskill on. But it also, as part of that, does have a component of how we talk about imaging to people with osteoarthritis. It's interesting, um, you were talking before, Tasha, about the um, how common degenerative findings are in these in asymptomatic people. So these are people who don't have current pain and possibly have never had current pain who do show a high rate of degenerative changes. And we certainly know very similarly low back pain spinal images in asymptomatic populations show loads of degenerative changes dysbulges facet joint degeneration are are super common and I guess another strategy when we're talking about sort of widespread dissemination of information um, and avenues that that can come from is um, whether or not the radiologists can actually be reporting on the imaging findings differently um so don't they have to put everything in i thought that was one of the challenges with radiology reports there's some either it's a perception that they have to put everything in or there's a legal requirement that if they see it they need to write it down is that your understanding or i don't have a complete understanding but i certainly think radiologists are completely obliged to report what they see when they review an image it's Um, not like they can do a one sentence report saying nothing no ab- no important abnormality detected or no nothing. so those kind of scary phrases are are going to be in those imaging reports but i guess it's a matter of in interpreting in a, them in a way to to de-threaten them if we can in the online study that i undertook there where people were randomized to get imaging or didn't get any imaging we further randomised people to receive some enhanced reporting or standard reporting. And what these enhanced reports involved was some descriptive information that was age-relevant that um, described the normal findings, the normal degenerative findings. I guess people commonly assume that degenerative findings and these phrases that sound abnormal on imaging are abnormal but we actually understand now that that they're not necessarily always abnormal and that they're probably just better off thought about as sort of wrinkles on the inside or just normal occurrences that happen with aging and I guess interestingly when you know when you consider when you have a blood test for example you're given the result of your blood test and then you're given a bit of a range for what is normal I guess there's no such reporting around spinal imaging and what we tried to do was to convey that many of these changes are normal in the general population of that age. So we tried to sort of contextualise, I guess, to convey an understanding of the amount of people without pain out there 
that did have similar findings on their scans. And the other thing we did in this enhanced reporting was um, was we changed the summary, the wording that was used in the report summary. So many people do skip over those level-by-level level changes that are spinal image reports and they just go down to the final comments at the end. So we thought we probably could get away with manipulating that in that the radiologist had reported everything relevant in the age in the level by level um, report above so we changed some of the phrases in that summary report we got rid of degenerative changes and we talked about them as being sort of normal adaptive changes and we conveyed the real importance of matching up what's the changes were identified on imaging with their clinical presentation and their symptoms and it's only through matching up those two things that the relevance of the findings reported on imaging can actually be accurately conveyed. Mm. Did it have an impact? Yeah, so these enhanced reporting strategies led to more reassured patients in this virtual patient scenario. So it certainly is an avenue that could be explored more in the clinical world. Yeah, sure. I, I love that idea, and I think it really highlights the importance of consistency in message, doesn't it? So that from the entire you know hierarchy going from when they very first maybe, if they have got undergone in June, get a report, that right away this message is consistent among different health professionals. Because certainly when we went on pain revolution and we're talking to going to rural and regional communities and talking to clinicians that are working there, one of the biggest points that came across to me was that people said, look, I'm, I'm talking to patients and I'm, I'm, you know, educating them about this type of stuff, but then they might go to this other health professional and they're hearing something completely different. And particularly when that other health professional might be someone like a surgeon who we do know that oftentimes information coming from different health professionals is prioritized based on their hierarchy. So surgeons are listened to, you know, and specialists are listened to very carefully and kind of taken as the truth. And so when we have that, I guess, disconnect in messages, I think that's where that's really hard to be a a patient. And it's hard to be the person treating that patient because you're almost fighting against the other health professionals, (laughs) which is challenging. But so I guess some of the strategies that I see that would be really important is really finding ways to keep that message consistent, whether it's through, you know, increasing training within some of the medical programs in terms of pain science knowledge, in terms of imaging, because I think it varies quite a lot, but some of the programs get very little training on this type of stuff. Like I know, um, I won't say where my husband went to school, but he had one lecture on chronic pain from uh, Chris Meyer. And that was kind of about it when it came to back pain, despite it being, you know, one of the most common things people will consult for. How did you find Adrian with, I guess, consistency of message within an emergency department? That's a really complex situation. It's really complex, yeah. So obviously you've got multiple professionals working on cases in a very short period of time and communication can be lost when everything's so rushed. And yeah, the other challenge with communicating to people about back pain, so obviously this in EDs this is where physios are becoming more, they're being placed in EDs to try and take the, the burden off the waiting room because so much back pain and musculos- simple musculoskeletal problems are presenting. So a new model of care is having... A physio do part of the assessment and treatment um, but they're still working out how that model of care works so sometimes it'll be the ED doctor that sees the patient first and explains it and then they'll eventually end up at the physio and the physio will listen to the explanation and go that no that's a, that wasn't right and then give something different and so even in the one 
healthcare setting, you're getting different messages. One thing my colleague has been doing is doing an implementation study in EDs where he's doing clinician training. So this is nurses, allied health, ED doctors. I don't think many of the neurosurgeons attend, but it's sort of a multidisciplinary training program across New South Wales hospitals. And it's tough to do, you know, it's a tough study to do you've you've to train all these people to give these messages about guideline based care and appropriate use of imaging you've got to go out and train them and then within a month or two the doctors rotate so then you've got to do it again so we're thinking through or my colleague Gustavo Machado's based at Sydney Uni where I'm based and he's completed that study which is a randomized trial of 4,000 people with back pain presenting to ED. So it's going to be interesting to see what they find with the how they went with the clinician education strategies because that was a key bit, was to try and get consistency in the care in one setting. But then, you know, there's the complexity of those patients going back out to primary care and getting a different explanation. But I fully agree with you, Tasha. The medical programs need to change. I've taught in medical programs recently and it's, it's disappointing how little is dedicated to musculoskeletal pain and I think that would be if, you know, nationwide we increase training in. There are modules on overdiagnosis, which is fantastic to see, so that's starting to increase. Um, but there's not much on pain, not much on appropriate use of imaging and, you know, GPs have got so many other things they need to think about. It's hard to cover everything in depth, but we're getting to the point where we may need to reprioritise things. Do you think, Adrian, that um, incentivisation of longer consultations is a necessary part of this to allow GPs to convey the information that they need to um, in the clinical consultations? I definitely think that'll help. You know, the, the evidence suggests that the shorter the consultation, the more likely a patient is to get an opioid. And there's no direct evidence, but I would expect that imaging rates would be higher in shorter consultations because it's a way of getting people through the door. Patients are happy when they leave with a strong painkiller and a test to see what's wrong. Great, out in five minutes. To sit down and explain why someone doesn't need imaging takes longer than five minutes. So um, I think we need to support GPs to give them the time that it takes to provide really good education and advice. And, and I think that would be in good, a good investment for the government. What do you think, Tasha? Yeah, I'm, I always feel slightly torn on this. I, I see the merit, certainly, in, in longer appointments with GPs. I would be really interested to see their comfort level with that. So if, say for example, if they knew that there was a resource such as a one and a half or a 45-minute, one-hour consult with a physiotherapist that they could refer to who was really comfortable in going through this and talking about this type of information, and they were the ones to prime it. So they were to say, look, actually, we've had new knowledge in this area. I want to send you to you know, one of the people that are the best to talk to you about this and that can take the time. Let's follow up in a week and let's talk about what you heard. Because I think there maybe is flexibility for integration of different roles within that. Because certainly in trying to engage GPs, it's been really hard. And that's not judging them like you said they're so busy they have so many things on their plate they have so many things that they have to be aware of and picking up serious conditions and referring as possible so if this is something that's slightly outside of their skill set and they're not comfortable with engaging in and feeling like they know all the information and they're they're giving the proper advice then I think maybe that might be a really unique role for physiotherapy to be someone that would be referred to and go through this fully Mm, yeah I absolutely agree with that point Tasha and I guess it 
GPs still need to take a lot of responsibility just for those words that they choose and the brief messages that they deliver in those early consultations because we know how powerful they can be Firstly, because they're coming from a GP who they may hold in a position of higher authority, but just healthcare messages can have such a resounding impact on a person's beliefs about their prognosis and their understanding of pain. And you're so right, because it's often always those little throwaway comments that mm. just stick for people. Like, you know, we had a couple of people come to the, the brain bus when we were doing pain revolution, and, and they came and they said, oh, my, you know, my GP took a look at my x-ray and, and just said, oh, that's the worst I've ever seen. That's the back of an 80-year-old. And unfortunately, the person wasn't 90, which would have been a compliment. But So I think it's, it's a, a challenging thing in that sense, but absolutely that it's probably a, a getting onto this on numerous fronts, isn't it? But it's, it's also elevating physios to be you know we're frontline practitioners already but I don't want to sound competitive with the GPs but it might be time to start you know restructuring the health system so that for example workers compensation claims I don't think necessarily need to go through a GP and then to a physio so we're sort of the second line approach that really good quality advice early on in a consultation would happen if physios could screen these patients first we don't necessarily need to have a culture where GPs are the ultimate authority. Well, surgeons are sort of the top, and you know, but then GPs are probably really credible sources of information. But I think that's partly to do with some of the structure in our health system that might need to change. Um, now, I think we need to evaluate it as well. So I think we we don't need to have a mad rush of everyone going to see a physio for everything because that could cause overtreatment as well. So I always have that on my overdiagnosis hat on there. Physios aren't immune, but I also think you know we we are, are very skilled, like you said, and I thought you, you put it beautifully, Tasha, that we're really skilled in this early education that can be done in a one or two consultations is not going to the health system is not going to collapse and it could prevent you know we have evidence high quality evidence from systematic reviews that early education for acute low back pain reduces health service use in the subsequent 12 months so it's probably going to be a good good investment and it doesn't need to be a 45 minute consultation it could be shorter but it's the quality it's the quality that, that I think is key yeah and I think that those messages that people get and the quality of those messages potentially also has intersection with other areas because if it's if it's leading and developing beliefs about what's wrong and what's going on it also then potentially shapes what they're going to expect in terms of what treatment they should get so if they have these thoughts that you know this is all everything's broken this is you know hurt not working our jobs as physios to try to convince people that probably exercise is the very best thing for them, which, you know, resoundingly, that's what the evidence shows. That's really hard. It's really hard because how do you convince someone that you should be doing things on something that's broken? So It's a tough sell. It is. So, yeah, I think having these high consistent and high value messages could be really powerful not only just in that initial counter but in the sequelae of what we see in terms of maybe even treatment compliance treatment adherence like I I do think that there could be some really important effects of that that we might not see right away but they might be longer term down the road effects I think the way that possibly physios interpret and the way they use information from scans probably varies quite a lot so there certainly I think is value in in looking to upskill our profession in in how to do it because I, I guess one of the key things is the comfort that you feel with doing something like that so if you as a person as a health uh, practitioner are not really sure if this stuff 
you know, well, maybe this is true, but maybe it's not. The ability to communicate that with confidence and with reassurance, I I don't think that's going to happen. And I think until there's you probably get the chance to ask hard questions and to really delve into the research and maybe pick the brains of experts like Adrian and Emma, those doubts perhaps might still be there. And because I I, I don't think it's an easy thing to do. Like, I, I don't want to downplay at all how hard sometimes challenging these types of very held deeply beliefs actually is to do. Yeah, there's probably scope to develop resources that can be used across conditions. We've tried to do that. We've haven't nailed it down yet, but there's so much overlap between knee away and, and low back pain and other um, conditions where you know the, the prevalence of abnormalities on imaging is very high and that there's this tendency of these findings to possibly drive overuse of invasive treatments like surgery and injections and those sorts of things. But we're still trying to figure out you know, what a patient is more likely to use and what a clinician is more likely to use. Uh, would they prefer condition-specific materials or, or a generic resource? And the initial data we have is that those condition-specific ones are, are preferred. But I still think there's scope on a public health level to communicate broadly about overdiagnosis and, and the fact that having a scan you know, does have these things that you should consider before you decide to go down that road. I think it's really interesting to, like, because I think a lot of the materials that we've been talking about have been sort of educational materials. And one of the things that I guess I always find intriguing is people will tend to come into a consult, so even for some of the clinical trials that we're screening from, and sometimes the information that dictates or guides their choice the most is, oh, my neighbor told me this and told me to try this and said it really worked for him or her. And so I wonder whether there's value in, you know, identifying patient champions that have kind of gone through, they've done well, they've learned some really key lessons that they felt were important to, I guess, their recovery, and almost being able to pair people with them. Like, it wouldn't work in in an emergency department. Gosh, could you imagine trying to organize that? But, I mean, I wonder with some of the more longer-term clinical encounters, whether there's some merit. Because certainly some of um, Professor Jennifer Stinson's work, she does a lot of stuff with pediatric pain and looking at apps. And I know they had a program where they were pairing people, kids with mentors that were a little bit older that had been through almost that adolescence transition of trying to deal with a chronic pain condition. And they found that really useful. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm interested to see what the future holds for how we can kind of revolutionize these methods and really use you know, social dynamics and connectiveness to our advantage, I think, in this. That's an, that's an amazing idea because it's such a, yeah, the healthcare encounter, it's complex. It's not, not just about throwing information at people. And I think ultimately we're trying to empower people to take charge of their care, but that's not a simple process, you know, and there's a lot of variation in health literacy and numeracy and the ability to understand risk. So even a generic education resource may work for some people who are health literate, but it's hopeless for another person or from people from culled backgrounds, linguistically diverse backgrounds. So the idea of champions is another way of empowering people to you know, self-manage and to navigate a really complex healthcare system and not find themselves being overdiagnosed and overtreated. That was Adrian Traeger, Tasha Stanton and Emma Karen. And you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio. One final thank you to Flexies and the Physiotherapy Research Foundation for helping us to produce this podcast. Stay tuned for another episode very soon. Thanks for listening.